It all happened on a day, that joyful Christmas day planned in eternity by God the Father and declared by angels as this day which Christ the Savior would be born. On this day, at the perfect fullness of time in the prophesied city of Bethlehem, a promised Savior was born to a perishing world. Jesus' birth shook an unassuming, silent night into a spectacular night as history was split between Christmas promised and Christmas fulfilled. So it was that in the manger lay the infant Jesus Christ, God's great confirmation of all his promises revealed in the glory of Christmas. Merry Christmas, church family. Let's turn in our Bibles together to the New Testament book of Hebrews. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter one this morning as we continue our Christmas series. Now, my wife and I got married in the month of January. So it was almost a year until we shopped for our first Christmas tree. Now, because of my allergies as a kid growing up, um, my family always had an artificial tree. And when I found out that my wife also grew up with an artificial tree, I thought, boy, picking out a Christmas tree is gonna be a simple thing for us. I mean, you know, we love each other and Christmas is about Jesus, right? Well, first of all, I had no earthly idea how many different kinds of Christmas trees there are. There are different styles and shapes and sizes and colors. Do you want full or do you want thin? Do you want flocked or not flocked? Do you like white lights or colored lights? And on and on it goes. But the problem for us was that each of those preferences, my wife wanted the exact opposite of what I did. I know I couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. Now, friends, we had plenty of fights that first year of our marriage, but none of them compared to the Christmas tree inferno of 1997. <laughs> but you know what? Eventually, one of us got the final word about the Christmas tree, and I bet most of you in this room know who that was. Ultimately, she got the final word. Now, in the passage that we're gonna to study today in Hebrews chapter one, we are reminded that there is only one who not only has the final word about Christmas, he is the final word at Christmas, and his name is Jesus. And the human author that God uses to write the book of Hebrews really states the theme right off the bat for the entire book right here in the verses that we're gonna look at this morning. Uh, and the theme is this, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation from God to his people. So let's take a look, shall we? Let's stand together if you're able to in honor of the reading of God's word. And we will begin Hebrews chapter one, beginning in verse one. The word of God says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated today. Now, I will admit that this is probably not a common passage 
to read at Christmas time. But I think it's helpful as a reminder as to why we celebrate Christmas. And I just love the beginning of Hebrews chapter one because it clarifies who the glory of Christmas is all about, and that's Christ. So what I'd like to do this morning is just highlight a couple of key phrases in this passage that point to Jesus, and you'll see those on your outline there this morning. And these first three verses, I believe, are beautifully written, almost poetic, as they assert that Jesus Christ is the final word, that there is one who has come, a savior for all, and yes, he came as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. But he is God incarnate calling sinners to repentance and faith in him. See, the Father has sent the Son as his final word, and we discover that first, number one on your outline, from his prologue. Number one is from his prologue. Like many great works of literature, the author of Hebrews here uses a prologue to set up what is to come actually in the rest of the book. And in making the case that Jesus is the final word, what the author does here is he harkens back to all that came before the very first Christmas. Look at verse one in your Bibles with me. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. Long ago, friends, God spoke. Don't miss that. Way too many people do miss that, particularly at Christmas time. God spoke. The book of Hebrews begins by affirming that the Bible is this incredible true story of God revealing himself to mankind down through the ages. Long ago, God spoke the universe into existence. He spoke then through general revelation in his creation. And throughout the whole Old Testament, as it says here in verse one, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke through a variety of means. Just think about everything in your Old Testament, how God spoke through a burning bush, through dreams. He spoke through visions. He spoke through messengers like angels. Heavens, he, he even used a donkey in Numbers 22 to communicate with people. It's stunning how God spoke, but those kind of moments are actually infrequent as you look at the Old Testament. And that's because the primary means that the Lord spoke in the Old Testament was through the prophets. Keep reading at the end of verse one. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. People like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and, and I could go on. God spoke primarily by the prophets who were given the ability by God to speak to his people. They would typically bring a message of warning and they would say to the people, over and over again, return to the Lord. Judgment is coming. Return to the Lord. Judgment is coming. But that begs the question, well, then why weren't the prophets the final word? Ever thought about that? Well, because they were temporary. When an Old Testament prophet died, a new one would have to replace it. And they were just human, which meant that they spoke on behalf of God. They did not speak as God. And the bigger issue for the Old Testament prophets was that they could only be an indirect means of revelation. They were sharing God's word, but they were not the final word. That's how we would sum up the prophets, temporary, merely human, and indirect. 
Long ago, God spoke, and that's how he spoke. But then came a revelation that was not temporary, that was not merely human, and certainly not indirect. Oh no, a greater revelation came. Keep reading, look at verse two now. But in these last days, there's the pivot. The author of Hebrews here is about to make a contrast, and he's also going to tell Morris about what happened in these last days. See, many people that would have read this in the first century would have misunderstood the term last days. They believe the last days were when the Messiah came and fulfilled every prophecy to Israel to set up the kingdom of God. But the last days, friends, is not a single point in time. It's actually an era. And we are in that era right now. We are in the last days. We are living in the last days because the last days is the time period between the first advent of Messiah, Jesus' first coming, and the second advent of Messiah, his second coming. Yes, Jesus came as a baby through Mary into a manger in Bethlehem, and when he did so, he inaugurated the last days, but the last days won't be complete until Christ returns again. The apostle Peter used this same term last days in Acts chapter two in his sermon at Pentecost, the birth of the church. The church in Acts was in the last days and we are too. Friends, understanding the timing of this is so important. This is why so many people miss the first Christmas. And there are people now, friends, family, coworkers, people that don't know that these are the last days, people that don't know that God has spoken. And he has spoken in a superior manner. He has spoken his final word. But notice who that final word is to in these last days. Look at it. In these last days, verse two, he has spoken to us. You ever been spoken to by an important person? Ever met like a president or or maybe a, a big-time athlete or a famous singer or actor? Yeah, me neither, but that would be really cool if it ever happened, right? Particularly if they initiated the conversation with us. That'd be kind of a special moment. But brothers and sisters, it is remarkable that God has spoken to us because that answers the fundamental philosophical question, can we know God? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes, we can know God. But there's a caveat, there's a condition. Knowing God has to be on God's terms, not ours. For salvation, God has revealed himself through only one means and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you come to Christ, you'll come to God. But if you don't, you won't. Friend, we can only know God through Christ because in these last days, God has spoken to us through Christ. That's why Christmas is amazing. See, the God of the Bible desires to be known by us, and that's an astonishing demonstration of his grace towards sinners. He wants to be known by us. He's not obligated to reveal himself to anyone, but he chooses to be a communicative God. Yet at the same time, he doesn't speak to us out of his own needs. He desires to be known, but that doesn't mean he lacks anything. You ever been around a person that just has to talk? They just talk 
and talk and talk. Usually it's about themselves. And that really, usually that, that reveals an insecurity that they have about themselves, an inadequacy that they feel. And they talk and they talk and they talk. God's not that way. And the Bible makes it clear that unlike us, God is truly self-existent. He is truly self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. So that means when he speaks, when he communicates and reveals himself, it's all grace. Because he doesn't need to do it and we certainly don't deserve to receive it. So think about, if God is passionate about making himself known to mankind, we who follow him are to be about the same thing, don't you think? We call that living missionally around here and we understand that part of being a disciple of Jesus means that we're gonna passionately make known Christ to those whom he has given us relationship with in our life. And at Christmas time, the subject matter of the gospel is, well, it's kind of ripe for the picking, don't you think? It's a wonderful thing to consider that God has spoken to us. And for those who have been changed by that good news, the good news of Jesus, we get to speak to other people about Jesus and present him as the final word. Oh, he's the final word in the prologue. But we also discover that Jesus is the final word in his position. Number two on your outline is in his position. Look at number, uh, stay in verse two in your Bible. Look at what it says. In these last days, he has spoken to us by who? Just try that again, by who? His son, that's right, his son. So think about it, back in verse one, long ago God spoke it many times in many ways, but now we're moving from many forms of revelation to one. All the Old Testament, all of human history has been preparation for the ultimate revelation, Jesus. He is superior to all other forms of revelation that have come before him. And as the final word, no further revelation is needed. And this one revelation, this final word, has a particular position within the triune Godhead, and that is he is God's son. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And friends, this is where the mystery of the incarnation begins to blend into the mystery of the Trinity. Here at McGregor, we affirm the historic position of the New Testament church down through the ages about the Trinity. Our statement of faith makes it very, very clear that there is one and only one true and living God. But that triune God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God eternally existing in three distinct persons, not three different gods. Is there a mystery to the Trinity? You better believe there is. But the point from the book of Hebrews here is about rank. The son in the Hebrew family throughout the Old Testament held the highest rank in the family just below the father. And particularly an only son would have absolutely no competition in terms of family rank. Remember John three sixteen reminds us that Jesus is God's only begotten son. So again, to emphasize the rank of this final revelation compared to all the other ways God has revealed himself to this point, Jesus is better. He's better because of the surpassing greatness as God's son. 
Pastor and author Warren Wiersbe says of Jesus here in verse two that he is the par excellence of divine revelation. God has spoken to us by his son. But notice also as we stay in verse two, the son is also the heir of all things. You see that in your Bibles, verse two? He is the heir of all things. Now we typically think about an heir when someone passes away. If it's a father-son relationship, and the father passes away, in the Hebrew culture at that time, the oldest son or the only son would be the heir, not only in terms of inheriting the family's wealth, but also inheriting the responsibility of leading the family from that point. But we know even from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, that the death of the father is not a requirement for a son to be an heir. You remember the prodigal? He demanded his portion of the inheritance before his father had died. And while that was unusual, he was well within his right to do that. So the position of Jesus being heir of all things is not about God the Father being replaced now by Jesus the Son. No, that's actually a heresy called modalism or oneness Pentecostalism. And it's, it's taught by false teachers like T.D. Jakes. But that's not the point of Hebrews 1. The point here is to highlight Jesus' position, his rank as the heir of all things. And as we read to the very next phrase in verse 2, we see that it was Jesus who created the world. How about that? And we'll get to that more in a moment. But we need to connect those two dots now. The son who created all things with the father has been appointed to possess and now rule over all that he originally created. That's astonishing. See, the son is the final word because in the end, he will triumph and he will inherit all things. Psalm 2 makes it clear that in the end, the son will inherit the nations. The son will inherit the earth because that is his right as God's son. And more importantly, we are his inheritance. We, the redeemed people of God, those who are in Christ. We learned that back in the John series that God the Father gave Jesus the Son a particular people for Jesus to buy back from our slavery to sin. I wanna read you from John 6, just to refresh your memory on what Jesus said about his people. Beginning in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, and that all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the fact that Jesus, the final word, holds the position as heir of all things, and that includes his people. All those who are in Christ, given by the Father to the Son. He is the final word in the prologue. He is the final word in his position as son and heir to all things. And next we discover that Jesus is the final word by his power. Number three on your outline is by his power. Stay in verse two and look at that phrase I just mentioned. He created the world. It's a, it's a simple phrase, but it's a powerful one. 
And by the way, after the first of the year, we're going to begin a new sermon series studying the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter one, as God the Father declares that he will create mankind, God says in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Those are interesting pronouns, aren't they? Us and our. And it begs the question, who is us? Well, it's the Trinity. And the glimpse of the Trinity that we get in Genesis 1 is clarified here in Hebrews 1. And once again, the mystery of the Trinity is blending into the mystery of the incarnation. Because at creation, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all present. See, Jesus' power does not just come and go whenever it's needed. He's not a Marvel superhero. His power is eternal because he is eternal. He was there at creation in Genesis 1. Better yet, he was before Genesis 1. The Apostle Paul makes this explicit point in Colossians 1, 16 and 17 when he says of Jesus, for by him all things were created. Sound familiar? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Friends, along with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus created the world. Now look down just a little further into verse three, and you'll see that Jesus also upholds the universe. How about that? Hebrews 1 is saying the exact same thing as Colossians 1 and Genesis 1. And upholding the universe doesn't mean that Jesus is struggling to hold it up like he's the Atlas statue, if you've ever seen that. It's not a burden for Jesus to uphold the universe or to hold all things together. No, the word here in Hebrews 1 for uphold means to move or to progress. Think about it. Christ's eternal power is such that he is sovereignly holding all things together and orchestrating everything towards his purposes. He'll bring about the ultimate end of human history and he will bring in his eternal kingdom. As George Friedrich Handel wrote in 1741 in The Messiah, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever, right? Brothers and sisters, I don't know the specific issue or issues that tempted you to worry last week. I know my own. But Jesus created this world and everything in it and he preceded creation because he's eternal and he's holding all things together and nothing that you or I could experience could provide a better reason for us to genuinely be joyful this Christmas time. Don't dread this holiday. It will come and it will go and it will not go the way you want it to go. It just won't. This holiday season is not designed to fill our greatest need. Only Christ has the final word on that. His power is shown in him creating the universe, in him upholding the universe. And Jesus' power is also shown now in verse three. Move to verse three and look at it. His power is shown as the radiance of the glory 
of God. Isn't that beautiful? Now we've looked at what the glory of God is before, back when we were studying John chapter 11. And we've said before that God's glory is his revelation of himself as he is. And that's at the core of this idea of God's glory, him revealing himself. And that's consistent as one of the elements of Jesus's power. That's why he mentions it here. See, the glory of God in Hebrews 1 is a callback to the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament. And the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament was found in primarily one of two places. Initially, it was found in the tabernacle, which was that movable tent that God's people used as they traveled from Egypt to Canaan. But then eventually, it found a permanent home. The Shekinah glory resided in the temple in Jerusalem. The glory of God in both of those places was a visual reminder to God's people that he was dwelling with them. So now it shouldn't really be a surprise to us that Christ, the final word, is the radiance of the glory of God, as verse three says. We'll talk more about this particular issue next Sunday when we look at John 1, but here in Hebrews 3, we are reminded that Jesus is the ultimate way that God dwells with us. Yes, the second person of the Trinity took on the form of a baby who was born and grew into a man crucified at Calvary, but that sacrificial death and his resurrection on the third day, for all those who turn from their sin and trust him by faith, they will be forgiven and they will dwell with God in a way that's not possible in a tent or in a temple because Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And this issue of radiance is not about reflection. I wanna be clear about that. See, Christ is not a reflection of God the Father's glory, but the radiance of God's glory is coming directly from Christ as well. Think of it this way. Think about the sun, S-U-N, the sun, the big ball that's up in the sky. The rays of the sun emanate from the sun, but you can't separate the rays of the sun from the sun, right? And in a similar way, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory but you can't separate the nature of Christ from the nature of God the Father. They are one and the same. And one more time, we get into the mystery of the Trinity blending into the mystery of the incarnation. Stunning. And this in issue of radiance is made a bit more clear by another phrase in verse three that describes Jesus. Look at it there in your Bibles as the exact imprint of his nature. So now, that's how we see his power described. And as with the previous illustration, Jesus the Son is not reflecting the Father's glory. He is radiating his own essential glory because why? He is the exact imprint of God's nature. I think a simple way to explain what this phrase means is that when you see Jesus, you see God. And when you know Jesus, you know God. Jesus is not merely a renegade Jewish rabbi that lived two millennia ago. He's not simply a man or a good teacher or, or another martyr in human history. No, he is God. He's no less God than the Father or the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.9 describes Jesus this way. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know a better way to explain what Hebrews 1.3 means when it says Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, except, but to quote Colossians 
You know, it's kind of funny. The prophets in the Old Testament spent a lot of oxygen describing what God is like to the people. I mean, Jeremiah, for example, he faithfully preached for over 40 years with very little to show for it, by the way. But Jesus, Jesus is superior to Jeremiah because Jesus came not only to preach, but to show people what God was like. And that wasn't a stretch for Jesus because he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Not a replica of God, not a pinch hitter for God, but the son is an exact representation of the nature and the essence of who God is himself. And if we can wrap our heads around any, just a tiny fraction of that this season, we'll be a lot better off. Now I wanna give a word to the dads in the room, a word of encouragement. Dads, <laughs> you know, it's good to be reminded at Christmas time that Jesus came to show what God the Father is like. <laughs> but even so, brothers, in his wisdom and in his kindness, God allows human fathers to play a unique role in the life of their kids by allowing us to show them what God is like. We are not by any means the exact imprint of his nature, only Jesus is that. But dads, the question for us becomes, is the God we're showing our kids an impatient God? An indifferent God? A disappointed or frustrated God? I can assure you that my boys have seen that in their dad. But brothers, the power of Christ that sustains us and dwells within us should also convict us and lead us to repentance when we fail our children. You know why? Because we too are children. If we're in Christ, God is our Father. And the Father's mercy has outweighed and outpaid our sin debt. Praise God that our Father is radically gracious to us like that. And that's because the justice of the Father in regards to our own sin has been satisfied by the Son, Jesus, who is the exact imprint of God's nature. So as we wrap up with verse three, we now see that Jesus has the, is the final word as demonstrated finally through his purpose. Last on your outline, number four, is through his purpose. Why is there a need for a final word? Why did Jesus come? Why did the Father send the Son? Stay in verse three, go all the way to the end. After making purification for what, church? Sins. After making purification for sins. Oh, this is why he came. He didn't come to give us warm fuzzies about a December holiday because there's a bigger problem that a tree and a wreath and Santa cannot fix. And that is you and I have a sin problem. And we can deny that or dismiss that or even try to redefine our sin so that it's really not a big deal at all. We can attempt all those things and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow is Christmas. But friends, he came to address our 
sin, which means the baby came to die. And you're not gonna see that on any of your friends' Christmas cards this year. We typically don't associate Christmas with death unless we're grieving a loved one who has passed away and this is our first Christmas without them. But Jesus' death is integral to the Christmas story. His death was necessary because of our sin, which is why he came in the first place. Have you come to that conclusion that his death was necessary to pay for your sin? Most people in the first century would have thought they were a good person and that they were just fine with God because of the good things they did. Most people today feel the same way. But the author of Hebrews comes along and blows that theory completely out of the water when he says the son's purpose was to make purification for sins. And at that time, they would have objected, no, 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 we have priests to make purification for our sins. But if you keep reading the book of Hebrews, you'll discover that Jesus is the greater priest. And how do we know that? Last on your outline, last phrase that's in verse three. He sat down. Jesus sat down. Where'd he sit down? At the right hand of the majesty on high, it says, which is a place of honor. But why does his sitting matter? Well, the Old Testament priests never sat down when making sacrifices for the people because honestly, their work was never done. The moment a Hebrew priest would wrap up sacrificing an animal, somebody somewhere would sin again. And moment after that moment, after that moment, after that moment, after that moment, the sins of the people would begin to pile up like a mudslide hitting a bridge. And another sacrifice would immediately be needed. Jesus sat down because his work is done. There's no other sacrifice for sin that is eternally affected, but Jesus offered himself on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God the Father against our sin. He did it once, and then he sat down because his work is finished. The message of Christmas is that the work of salvation is done, hallelujah. But the question for you is will you trust in God's final word? Will you turn from your sin today and by faith receive the only Christmas gift that matters eternally? And that's Jesus Christ.